Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. Welcome back to the Off Hours Cooking Show. Uh, John, I understand that you've had some uh, baking challenges uh, this evening. Is this legit? <laughs> I made some terrible cookies. And I was about to say today, but I can't even say today because this was a, a multi-day affair. They were supposed to be the world's best chocolate chip cookies. And and who has defined these as the world's best chocolate chip cookies? Uh, this was SeriousEats.com, the food lab. Scientific. Okay. These guys are normally, they're normally really good about this sort of yeah, thing. Exactly. To their credit, I will blame my chocolate because while it is a nice chocolate, I may have let it sit a little too long in the cupboard without making use of it. So it's a Valrona chocolate, semi sweet. It was delicious the day I bought it. I did not test the chocolate before crumbling it up in pieces and tossing it into this batter that I slaved over and then let sit to emulsify and just soak in the flavor. Well, how long how long had this chocolate been sitting there? Um, I don't know. I don't know. Are we talking weeks, months, years? I would say decades? I would say it's it's got to be at least a year. At least. Okay. That's not ideal. No, definitely not. And I would not recommend using year-old chocolate in a cookie that takes multiple days to make. That was I was very disappointed. But I mean that wasn't the only thing to go wrong. I also encountered some issues with the butter. Yeah, now explain this to me. I you, you said earlier off uh, before we started recording that that this recipe involves chilling liquid or molten butter quickly using an ice cube what what, what is going on here yes yeah, so you're su supposed to brown some butter you get it to a nice golden brown and you pull it off the heat and keep stirring for uh, another few seconds can't remember off the top of my head it might have been 30 seconds until you get a, a darker richer brown and at that point you want to rapidly cool the butter so you capture this perfect brown butter. Right. And the method to achieve this is using an ice cube. Now, in the directions, he does not say exactly how to combine the ice cube and the butter. So I put my ice cube in a bowl, and I poured the butter into the bowl. <laughs> this is a terrible idea. I got a quarter of the butter into this bowl that should have held three times the volume of my molten butter. But by the time I got about a quarter of it in there, it was flowing everywhere. Just this volcanic eruption of butter and water vapor. Just the molten butter instantly vaporized the ice cube. And there were just these massive bubbles of water vapor encapsulated in butter just flowing all over the counter. So it was, uh, it was a mess. I mean, that could very well be part of been why they were not the best cookies I've ever had. But uh, I, I still blame the chocolate. Yeah, my, my suggestion, if you're going to try that in the future, if you want to cool down the butter, instead of putting a water into a molten fat uh, or vice versa, you may want to put, the, uh, put a bowl in 
to another bowl with chilled water, uh, you know, with a, uh, let's say ice water and, or a double boiler or something like that and pour the butter into the top bowl so that it's not actually getting wet and it's not in contact with the ice itself. You may find that's a little bit more successful than trying to dump the butter into ice or vice versa. Yeah, I have a feeling putting the ice in the butter would have been much more successful, but still. I still think you would find that uh, that putting putting water into a fat like that is, uh, especially a very hot fat, is probably going to cause you problems in the long run. So I, I think that uh, when, when you do this, I think the better idea is to uh, put it into a chilled bowl, basically. But <laughs> it must have made for an entertaining uh, day in the kitchen, though. Oh, yeah. Tons of fun. As a subtext or a sidebar there in the recipe, they do recommend after combining the ice cube and the butter, you put it in the fridge for about 20 minutes. And that if you don't want to wait that long, then to actually do what you said and put the bowl in another bowl of ice water or a bath of ice and stir it in there until it hardens. Well, I think that uh, I'm going to be avoiding that chocolate chip recipe or chocolate chip cookie recipe. I did uh, recently find a video on uh, Bon Appetit's YouTube channel. I'm a, a regular there uh, watching most of their videos. And uh, they spent a few weeks making chocolate chip cookie recipes from various sources. And this is what they came up with as their favorite chocolate chip cookie recipe. Uh, so we'll include that in the uh, in the show notes. I have not actually made them yet, but they do look particularly tasty. Well, that'll be a, a good go for round two. These were intended... For a neighbor, we just had some new neighbors move into the neighborhood, and I was going to bring them some cookies. Needless to say, I will not be bringing them these cookies. Well, these these ones are much simpler than the ones you were you were describing, and I, I, these don't look like they take multiple days to make. And no exploding butter either. Oh yeah, my my favorite chocolate chip cookie recipe is actually a subset of a cookie recipe that my wife has made over the years and, and refined. It's a, a cookie within a cookie, and the outer cookie is a chocolate chip cookie. And that particular chocolate chip cookie on its own is, is my favorite. And like this cookie recipe that you've recommended is far less time-consuming, much more bang for your buck in terms of the time invested in making it. And they stay nice and fluffy for, for days. Now, now, do you like a crispy cookie or do you like a chewy cookie? What do you What do you like as your cookie? What's What's your ideal texture for a good chocolate chip cookie? I like a balanced chocolate chip cookie, a crunchy outer core, not so crunchy that you have crumbs flying everywhere when you bite into it, with a, a nice soft middle. All right. Well, then you, you need to check out the the Bon Appetit one because that's that's sort of what they were going for as their ideal as well. So that was uh, that was what they ended up with. Perfect. Now, my favorite chocolate chip cookie recipe is not really, it's not really fair to call it a cookie. Um, it's a skillet cookie that I make on my barbecue that is absolutely wonderful. A barbecued cookie? Yes, absolutely. I, I've got a few smokers in my backyard. I've got some Kamado style smokers or barbecues that are basically big ceramic ovens uh, that are charcoal powered. And uh, it turns out that they work very, very well for baking as well as for barbecuing or grilling. 
And so I do this this lovely cookie. It's done in a nine inch cast iron skillet. It involves huge amounts of butter and sugar and chocolate and various other things. Uh, and it ends up being basically being uh, you know sort of an inch and a half thick chocolate chip cake more than a cookie. It gets served hot and it is absolutely delicious. It is uh, it is wonderful, wonderful to uh, to eat. And I'll uh, we'll include a, a video um, from uh, the Kamado Joe cooking channel where uh, I originally learned about it and I've since modified it slightly for my own tastes. But that's where I got the uh, the idea from originally. And it's uh, it is really worth doing. Your skills on the grill never cease to amaze me. Well, if you you have to eat every day and if you're going to eat every day, you may as well eat well. So if you busted out your grill for the summer yet? Yeah, I don't. My my barbecues never go away, John. I I use my barbecues all year round. Kamado Joe in the snow. Yeah, absolutely. I I don't. Under, well, I understand if you've got a regular barbecue, if it's just a you know something like a Weber you know gas barbecue, whatever. I understand not being able to use it over the winter, but uh, especially up here. But yeah, the uh, one of the advantages of nice big ceramic uh, barbecues is that uh, they hold their heat very very well in the winter. So I have been out on Christmas Day when it has been 25 below, standing in the snow and smoking my turkey. Yeah, it's a great way to to cook in the winter because then you don't have to worry about the, you know, the heat and everything in the kitchen and the house. And uh, you get the lovely flavor of cooking over charcoal and smoking it. And uh, it, it works really, really well even in the wintertime. A great way to fill your stomach and lose a few toes. Yeah, yeah, you do have to be careful about that. I, I've been a little more reticent about going out in in super cold weather this past year, but it's uh, it's great because it means that you can actually get good barbecue any time of year. You don't have to wait until the summer, especially the way that uh, our weather's been going. We're a couple of days away from the summer solstice, and the weather is still miserable here. We actually had to turn the heat on today to warm up the house a bit. Well, that's some serious commitment to your grills even just keeping the snow cleared and having a path to get out there yeah you've got to be careful actually with as i found out one year uh if your barbecues are still warm and it starts snowing or you start getting ice rain then uh, as they cool down the uh, water starts to freeze on them so i had uh, my barbecue was covered in about three quarters of an inch of ice when once after i finished barbecuing of course, you can't open the barbecue because it's now been frozen shut. So I, I ended up having to open up the top vent and uh, drop in a uh, a burning piece of wood, some burning charcoal in there, just so that I could warm up the barbecue enough to be able to uh, get it to melt so that I could actually open it and, and fire it up properly. It's a little ridiculous. Things we do for good barbecue. So what have you been up to in the, sh- the shop as of late? Uh, unfortunately, I haven't been getting a lot done in the shop itself. I'm uh, slowly getting my CNC mill back up and running. It's uh, it's now moving under its own power again. I, I had a few boards that needed to be replaced. They had been uh, they had fried at some point over the last year, and so I've now got my my CNC mill back up and running. And I'm just in the process of calibrating it and and getting uh, a few features tweaked. I'm trying to get the the spindle under control of the computer so that I don't have to manually start it and change the speed and things like that. So that's uh, my current task. I'm also working on a 
project to upgrade one of my cameras. I've got to work on making a battery grip for one of my video cameras so that I can get a little bit more recording time out of my battery instead of the 30 to 40 minutes I get out of it right now. So yeah, those are uh, those are sort of the two projects I'm working on, and those are mostly being done while I procrastinate finishing my presentation for the Goldsmiths Congress. Still haven't finished that yet, but I'm trying to get some other things done by procrastinating, not doing my my uh, presentation. Yeah, among the plethora of other things you have on the go as well, the battery pack project sounds interesting. From the little bit you've you've told me, both in terms of what you're actually going to be making the handle out of. Uh, but also the amount of battery life that you're actually going to be able to add to your camera by also conveniently adding a handle. Yeah, the the camera that I'm using is a Blackmagic Pocket Cinema Camera 4K. And I won't try and say that again because I know I'm not going to get it out the first time again. It's it's a great little camera. I love the the image quality that I get out of it, and it's uh, it looks gorgeous. But one of the downsides of it is that the Canon style batteries that are used in it are not really designed for running the the high end CPU that's required for the camera, the sensor that's in there, as well as the big five inch uh, touchscreen that's on the back of it. So the combination of all that means that a battery that you know, normally you might like a, I think the I think the original batteries were designed for the 5D Mark II, the Canon 5D Mark II. And you could run one of those for you know 2000 photos or whatever and so it might last you a week if depending on how you were shooting when you were traveling. But with all of the power requirements in the in the uh, Blackmagic camera you're getting maybe 30 or 40 minutes of battery life out of it. So it's a little bit frustrating when you're walking around, you're either turning the camera on and off all the time, which of course draws power as well, or you are, uh, you know, you're constantly switching out the batteries. And one of the advantages of this camera is that it does have a few other ways that you can power it. Uh, There's a DC power input on the side of it. So you can run it off the mains if you want to, if you're, you know, sitting in the studio or whatever. And that's what I do when I'm in the studio. But when you're out on the, you know, out and around and you're trying to trying to record, you don't want to be flipping batteries in and out of the thing all the time. So I'm working on a battery grip that has four 18650 cells in them. And they're going to be in series so that I can ex- I can get the uh, voltage that I need for the camera. I was trying to find a good place to put them so that they didn't unbalance the camera too much. They weren't you know, they weren't causing me problems because, of course, that's that's always a concern. And I've also been wanting to get a, uh, a handle on the side of the camera that's a little bit away from the center of it so that I can reduce the amount of vibration that I get just from holding it. Uh, the closer your hands are together, the more amplified your hand motions are going to be uh, as you're moving around. So if you can move your hands away from each other a little bit, then you get a little bit more stability and the the image is a little bit nicer. So this gives me the ch- opportunity to have a battery grip that's outside of the camera itself, the camera body. Uh, it's a little bit away from it so that I can hold it and get a little bit more stability as I'm shooting. And then uh, the batteries, uh, based on, on what I've been able to calculate, I should be able to get around in four hours of battery life out of this uh, this additional battery pack. So 
it's uh it's a huge improvement over the internal only batteries so have you been filming anything for your youtube channel with this yeah that's the idea so far i've i did start shooting a little bit when i was in the uk last time and um i've started putting those together into a into a video i don't know that i'm ever going to release that it's been more of a i'm i'm still learning the process of shooting what do i need to shoot what don't i want to shoot and then how do i put it together into something that's meaningful and actually looks interesting so uh a lot of learning you know i've spent decades as a still photographer so things like framing photos and whatnot is easy but adding motion in there definitely makes makes things a little bit more challenging and trying to turn uh, a bunch of clips into something that's interesting to watch is is also a bit difficult so uh, it's still quite a learning curve but uh the goal is to be able to film what i'm doing and be able to put that up onto youtube so that i can take individual skills that i know how to do and, and try and get those out into the world and, and make them a little bit more accessible setting your black magic camera aside for a moment I know you're a fan of DJI's products. What do you think of their new Osmo Action camera? As you say, I have been a fan of the DJI stuff for quite a while. The drones that they make are are fabulous. I don't own one, uh, which is probably good considering some of the changes that have just come into Canadian law about flying and operating drones. It's become a bit more onerous to do that. Uh, but the v- image quality off of their, their stuff is amazing. Uh, I do have one of their gimbals for uh, mounting my uh, cameras on and it is absolutely fabulous i'm curious to see these action cameras in person i know the reviews that i've been seeing about them have been fabulous a number of youtubers do use the action cameras for filming in their shop in large part because the things are pretty much indestructible you can uh, mount them into uh, machines like a cnc mill or a cnc lathe and it doesn't matter if the coolant comes on because they're waterproof uh, or if they get caught by a machine or whatever they're um, you know they're going to survive so a lot of people do use them and um, and they, they work okay for that i don't have as much use for them uh, the stuff that i'm i'm filming I, I don't really like the look of the wider angle lens and even though you can sort of narrow down the view uh, i find that that has some limitations and I'm, I'm not really a big fan of the look i do have an older gopro that I have thought about replacing at some point and I use it for different things like, you know, if I'm driving or whatever, if I'm, if I do happen to have something where I, I want a camera that I'm not worried about getting destroyed and uh, then it's handy to have that sort of thing around. Plus they're tiny. They, they don't, they don't take up a lot of space. So, uh, the one thing that DJI is great about is their image stabilization. So I'm curious to see how they, how good it actually is. Yeah. They, they, they do look like a, a really nice little package. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm really impressed by it. And the thing that really sets it apart from the GoPros is the dual screens, which is something that GoPros should have done years ago. Yeah, I'm a little surprised that GoPro has never put a screen on the front of their their cameras. I, and I should say, they do have a screen on the front of their camera. It's just that it's information only. It doesn't actually show you any anything about the picture, which makes it really challenging if you're trying to film and you're not behind the camera either because you're trying to film yourself or you're trying to film something where you want a, a different view from what you're seeing. And like I've seen a lot of people mount their GoPro on, let's say, the tailstock of their lathe. Well, 
if you're working on the lathe, you can't see the back of the screen on the camera. So it's a little bit awkward to see what's actually going on in your camera and make sure that it's all framed properly and whatnot. So yeah, having a, having a screen on the front of it is, uh, is definitely a good idea. GoPro has not had significant or serious competition in this market. Uh, there have been a few companies that have sort of tried their hands at it, but most of them are sort of inexpensive or cheap clones of the GoPro. They're not really trying to push GoPro. They're just trying to sort of knock off whatever GoPro's already done. So DJI is the first company in quite a while who's had significant resources who want to do something sort of beyond what GoPro is doing. So I'm, I'm, I hope that the two of them sort of push each other over the next couple of years and we, we get some serious improvements in these, these cameras as opposed to the small or iterative changes that uh, GoPro has been putting out over the last couple of years. The other clever thing that DJI has done is their action camera is compatible with just about any accessory you might have used with a GoPro. So you don't have to go out and rebuy mm -hmm. a whole bunch of accessories. There's all sorts of mounts and things that people will often use with their GoPros. So I think they've, they've done really well for themselves. Uh, one of the things that I did notice with the accessories is that it, even though they look very similar, you can't put them in the same housings. So you do have to have the housing for the actual DJI camera, which is fine because that's what it, it does come mm -hmm. with that. Uh, but you're right. All of the other mounting accessories, the little sort of multi-pronged mounting accessories that are that are everywhere from helmet cams to chest cams to mounting on your dash, that kind of thing. Those are all still compatible between the two of them. And that you're right, that was a, a really smart move having uh having something like that where you can just quickly bolt on your existing uh accessories to this camera and and you're good to go. One of the things that DJI did learn from some of the problems with the GoPro along with having the screen on the front They've also made it significantly easier to take the lens hood off so you can replace it with a ND filter to um, darken the image. If you're outside in the sun, uh, sometimes the it's just too bright to be able to get a good image. So being able to put a filter over top of your lens is really, really nice. And it's much easier to remove the, the lens hood off of the uh, DJI than it is off of the GoPro. So that's another thing that... Uh, most people, I don't think, realize that they can actually take the lens hood off of their GoPro. Uh, it, it's so difficult to get off, and it's not obvious that it, it should come off. So it is nice to see them uh, making it a little bit easier to do that. Yeah, it's a nice piece of carryover from their drones. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's something that they did learn from their drones. That it was important to make it easy to put ND filters and also additional lenses. I think you can add a couple of additional lenses onto the uh, the drones to be able to change the the focal length a little bit and i suspect there may be something like that that comes out with the uh, action camera as well so you can maybe change it from a super wide angle to more of a, a narrow view and and not lose resolution what i also find interesting here is that dji's first drone was essentially or it didn't come with a camera but the camera you could use with it was a gopro so you could attach a gopro to the drone and then you fly your drone and you capture all this nice video footage and now dji has been shipping its own cameras built into its drones for quite some time now so it uh, makes sense they have come full circle here their video stabilization is unreal yeah the the stabilization that they're getting out of their drones is absolutely remarkable it is uh it is definitely worthwhile 
um, if you're if you're looking for a drone, basically don't look at anything other than the, the DJI ones because there's there's really nothing nothing worth looking at at this point. Yeah, if you look at the image quality that you're getting off of the current Mavic Pro drones, I've I've played around with a few of those, and the the image quality out of it is absolutely remarkable. You, you wouldn't think that it was coming off of a drone, and it, it's amazing when you're sitting there and you're looking up at this drone and you're seeing it. You know, it's hovering, but it's jumping all over the place because of the wind and it's being sort of buffeted, moved around. And you're looking at your phone and you're looking at the image off of the phone and it is absolutely dead stable. It is incredibly impressive what they're able to do with those uh, those drones and just how clean the image is that you're able to get off of it. So I suspect that if even if they got it slightly wrong with this version of the action camera, it wouldn't surprise me if they figure that out very quickly and the next version is significantly better than the current one is. In a few years' time, you'll be shooting 8K in a camera this size. 8K is uh, is a little bit ridiculous at this point. I'm not sure that I would uh, I would bother shooting with it anytime soon. Uh, I know certainly my computer has a tough time keeping up with 4K, so 8K is just uh, just beyond what I'm what I'm interested in using right now. Yeah, I was going to say, aside from the storage, you also need some serious compute to actually manage and and edit that sort of footage. I mean, you'd be you know, looking at a new Mac Pro in your future with an afterburner. <laughs> no, no, I, I'm not looking at a new Mac Pro. I, I cannot afford a new Mac Pro, so I'm definitely not looking at one of those. As much as I would love one, there's no way I can afford one of those things. It comes with wheels. It's basically a car. No, it doesn't come with wheels, John. You have to buy the wheels separately. Fair enough. Sorry, it was the Mavic 2 Pro that I was thinking of with the uh, the the better image. It's um, It's got a Hasselblad camera built into it. And uh, it shoots 10-bit 4K video internally. It is an impressive machine. And the uh, the video quality off of it is just spectacular. Now, some of what you've been shooting there in your studio is the process of making a watch by hand. What do you think of the handmade watches that uh, Cedric Yona has been making? Yeah, the uh, the Watches TV did a a little piece on him recently, and uh, I, I've been following some of his journey on Instagram over the last little while. It's it's nice to see uh, a little bit more about what's going on as opposed to just the the really select images that are coming out of it. And uh, it is nice to see somebody making cases by hand like this. And uh, I think his his case design is a little bit too chunky for my liking, but. It is wonderful to see what he's doing, and certainly the uh, the finish on what he's doing is amazing. It's uh, he's certainly got that figured out. They also have, in my opinion, a, a very handmade quality to them. He doesn't seem to be he doesn't shy away from from showing that they're they're handmade. There are some definite um, faults is not the wrong word. Um, just some subtle incongruities. In the the shaping and the forming of the cases and the dials and things like that, where you can tell that this is not a mass-produced product. This is something that someone has spent countless hours slaving over, polishing, and refining to their own taste. Yeah, you can tell that these were things like the lug shape. They you can tell that he's forming these with uh, a file by hand or a sanding disc by hand. So 
each lug is not absolutely perfectly identical to each other one. You won't notice it by looking at it. Like if it's sitting on the table and you're looking at it, you probably wouldn't notice it. But if you look up close, you'll be able to see the individuality of, of each of those lugs because they were made individually by by somebody by hand. So you're right there. It is nice seeing a piece that's not, he's not being slavish to making it absolutely perfectly because frankly, we have machines that can make things absolutely perfectly. Uh, you can see the the hand of the maker in the piece and there is something to be said for that. You know, having said that, it is still finished to a very high degree. It, it still looks great. Uh, but it it is nice seeing somebody making something by hand and not trying to replicate what a machine is frankly better at doing, which is making something absolutely perfectly. Mm-hmm. How have things been coming along with your lugs? Last time we chatted, there were some problems with the prints. Yeah, I've had some problems with my prints, and uh, I think I've traced that down to the uh, the resin being too cold as I was printing, and I was hoping that was no longer going to be a problem since it's supposed to be summer here in Ottawa. Uh, but it is still cold enough that uh, the resins are not happy. And I'm also working on getting them milled. So once my CNC mill is up and running, hopefully this weekend, I will be able to try milling a set of lugs out of wax and see how they turn out. Some different challenges when you're milling them versus printing them. But I should end up with a more consistent model than what I've got right now out of the printer. Uh, So while I sort of troubleshoot some of the printing issues that I'm having, I can at least get um, get something made on the mill. Uh, the other nice thing is that milling them out out of wax will prove out the uh, CNC code that I've got for eventually being able to mill them directly into stainless steel. I will be making some of the first ones available for sale out of stainless steel and stainless Damascus. Uh, so I do need to make sure that the mill is going to produce... Uh, parts that are close enough to what I need so that I can then finish shaping them by hand at the end and uh, get them exactly how I want them. But uh, I do need to prove that out. So being able to mill them out of wax initially is a great way of being able to prove out those codes, uh, you know, the, the code and, and make sure that it does what exactly what it is that I want. Hopefully my challenges in the shop end up uh, resolving themselves with a little bit of work over the next couple of days because I do have to finish up a few things before I go over to the UK and uh, including my my talk and hopefully a, a watch case. I was I'm a little bit behind on making that watch that next watch case, so I'm hoping that I can get uh, get back into the shop and get them made without too many issues over the next few weeks. So I've only got about two and a half weeks before I head off to the UK again. Are you hoping to have a proper dial done beforehand too? Yeah, I've got a plan for doing the dial. Uh, there was a in a sort of a tangential field, I found out about a transfer method. It's a transfer paper used for taking toner from a laser printer. So you print onto the back side of this transfer paper, and then you can bake the toner onto a piece of metal. And once it's been baked onto the metal, you can then remove the transfer uh, from the other side. Uh, So it's a bit like the... Uh, the decals that I used to use as a kid when I was making model airplanes. Uh, so you can sort of transfer the uh, the image from the decal off of the, the clear transfer and onto the model. And this is the same sort of thing, except instead of just sort of sliding it off with water, you're actually baking the toner onto the, the, the metal piece. 
So I'm going to try that and see what it see what sort of dial it leaves me with. It's certainly not going to be good enough for my final dial design. I, I still think that I'm going to go with uh, pad printing for my final dial design. But at the very least, this gives me something better than printing onto paper, which is what I've been doing right now, and allows me to uh, put my text onto a piece of silver, which I can then engine turn, and I can start getting it closer to the look of what it's going to eventually be. Yeah, I think that I think this is going to be a, a huge improvement over what I've been doing, uh, and mostly because I'll be able to start engine turning the dial and get a sense of what that's going to look like and start to experiment a little bit with it and see what works and what doesn't work. Yeah, the resolution you're going to get from a laser printer isn't going to be as clean and crisp as a a well-engraved plate that you're pad printing from. Yeah. But uh, it's certainly a very clever approach to rapidly prototyping a dial. I look forward to seeing how that comes up. Yeah, I'm, I need something that can that I can do a little bit faster. Uh, unfortunately, as you say, making a, a pad printer plate will be more accurate than and give me finer detail than what I can get out of this laser printer probably, and, and certainly more repeatable than what I can get out of the printer. Uh, but the problem is that you need to have a plate made every time you make a change to the dial. Mm-hmm. And at this point, I'm still not confident enough in the dial design that I have to be able to say, this is the final dial design that I want. I still need to sort of live with it for a little bit. I'm going to change the size of a couple of the elements that are on it and maybe make them a little bit larger so they're a little bit more, le- little bit more legible. And so this is going to allow me to iterate that design faster and be able to see uh, you know, much quicker what works and what doesn't work and uh, also gives me some dials to play around with you know, so that I can start experimenting with my engine turning as well because that's another thing. I've got a few ideas for what I want to do but I just haven't had a chance to actually try them yet. So this is uh, yeah, this will be a, a good way to sort of prototype dials on a, you know, sort of quickly. With the engine turning in particular, it's really hard to imagine what the final result's going to be like until you have actually made it in the metal and then trying to interplay that with the printing as well and getting that balance right. Uh, this is seems like an excellent middle ground. Yeah, there's no way to get a sense of what the engine turning looks like without actually cutting metal and there are ways of obviously making samples you know you can make sample parts and i've I've experimented a little bit with sample parts but until you actually cut a dial that's the right size for your watch and then put it into a case and see what the text looks like around it and see how uh you know how it actually looks and and what the balance is like and things like that there's just no way of knowing. So you do have to, at some point or another, you have to actually make the thing and and wear it on your wrist and see what it looks like. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter, at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at underthelooping. And Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at silver underscore hand.